Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This week, we're sharing some of our favorite moments from 2016 with you. We get to talk to some really amazing people who make or do really amazing things. And of the hundreds and hundreds of interviews that I've done in my career, only one stands out as useless. So this was not an easy decision to pare this list down. We did, though. And we start off with Pedro Camacho, who wrote the score for Star Citizen. Pedro was featured in episode six, and when we spoke via Skype early this year, he was at his home in Portugal, trying not to wake up his baby son. In this portion of the interview, he talked about his musical influences. Probably the first composer that really, really inspires me is a cheap composer, actually. Uh, They are from the Renaissance period, so not... This was an era where harmony was not yet, didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. So harmony as we use it nowadays in jazz and movies and etc. It comes after Bach, which is obviously mm-hmm. is is a is a favorite composer of every composer. It has to be because Bach yeah. made harmony. So if you don't like Bach, then I don't know. Very very <laughs> weird because you have to like him. I agree. <laughs> but the composer I really like was Josquin Desprez. And Okigan. <gasps> Maybe Palestrina a little bit as well. So those were two, three uh, re- really great composers from mm-hmm. uh, from long before Bach ever even was born. Right. And it was wow. very curious that their music actually doesn't sound harmonic. It it breaks <laughs> the rules of harmony, but mm-hmm. it works. And and it was because of one thing, because. Music back then was completely thought in a horizontal way. Uh, and that's what I do with my music, or try to do with my music. So you see, many times you have music like, uh, okay, you have a chord and a melody. Mm-hmm. And jazz works like that a lot. And film music works like that. I, what I try to do in a, in a, in a score is, is try to make each line for each instrument cantabile, so they can, as if they can sing it. our full conversation with Pedro Camacho in episode six. The Star Citizen music is fantastic, and the game isn't even out, so here's hoping that that happens sooner than later and that Pedro keeps adding more music. 
When 2K released Mafia 3 at the end of the year, they did something unusual for a AAA game. They released the soundtrack before the game even came out. That worked out well for us because we got to talk to Jesse Harlan about the pretty much all blues score long before the game even came out. In this clip, Jesse explains how he came up with a style of music for two of the main characters in the game, Cassandra and Lincoln. Cassandra, I decided probably had stuff like Miles Davis on her turntable and um, like the soundtrack for the film version of Porgy and Bess. Lincoln stuff is all single coil electric, like Jimi Hendrix type guitar sounds mixed with, and and this is why we brought the steppers in, mixed with step oriented body percussion. If you're not familiar with the sound of stepping, it's very percussive. It's this sound and this mixture of music and dance and that has come out of black fraternities and sororities in the US and it's got a mixture of like military overtones to it and and a mixture of the kinds of routines that groups like the Temptations would do and this like call and response and it's really fascinating. And so I decided that even though Lincoln probably didn't go to college, it doesn't seem like he went to college from the story stuff that I had read, he went to Vietnam and was there probably with other guys in his unit who had gone to college. And Mm -hmm. so he probably was getting exposed to some step routines. And so I just liked this idea of the, the like aggressive masculinity of the sound of stepping and I wanted that to become a sound in Lincoln's music. Jesse was featured in episode 41 if you'd like to hear the rest of what he has to say. Jason Graves How could there be a best of anything without a pinch of Jason Graves? We got such a kick out of the score for Far Cry Primal. When you set a game in the Stone Age, that's bound to produce some creative music. Jason talks about that setting, and he'll mention a he in a sec. That he was the audio supervisor from Ubisoft for that game. I mean, it's the Stone Age. Literally, it's the Stone Age. (laughs) So... You know, no metal. I mean, if you really... He, he was saying things like, you know, the music being true to the spirit of the game and, you know, mm-hmm. emotionally capturing the beauty and, and mystery and danger and all that kind of stuff, but not taking you out of the context. And to me, that seemed like a pretty a pretty quick cheat. You know, I'm a fan of the cheats. <laughs> you know, what, what, what can I use that's like, that makes it really easy to identify the score? And that was what seemed uh, with the initial phone call, like an interesting idea. And of course, later I painted myself into a giant musical box, but that's what <laughs> always ends up happening. So that was the most 
interesting for me was, oh, well, drums, but no metal on the drums and and like horns, but not metal horns, like actual animal horns. And what could I use? What couldn't I use? And can I actually make it sound like uh, something that, that works for a video game and just isn't a silly guy, you know, stomping around in the dirt and grunting? To me, it's just so so neat to think about because obviously we have no understanding really. I mean, well, we have some understanding of what music might have been like, but there's certainly no like written examples or anything like that right. from 10,000 BCE. <laughs> and even just thinking about the melody and the harmony as we understand it today, that didn't even happen until 1600. Mm-hmm. A-C-E. So it just it just blows my mind, and it, it must have just been a blast for you. It was a lot of fun, especially because the guys at Ubisoft were so open to literally anything, and yeah. I would send things thinking, maybe this is a little too out there. And all <laughs> it would have taken was a, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work, and I would have gone in a safer direction. But all mm-hmm. they said was, Keep going, keep going, mm-hmm. keep going. So, you know, me grunting and talking about vocals being the first instrument ever and how, you know, we don't even really need a sense of harmony mm-hmm. or melody for that matter. Mm-hmm. It needs to be more textural and like plant sounds and vocals and flutes and things, but they're not even in a key together and they're not even in rhythm together. And yeah. I mean, I can see corporate eyebrows raising up like what is he talking about (laughs) and trying to make it all work musically of course Mm -hmm. the rhythm is what brings it together so that's where I sort of fell back on my drumming sort of past and then worked on the other stuff to be sort of the crazy experimental things. Jason and Far Cry Primal were featured in episode 12 and you can hear him talk about a completely different score with a humorously similar name, Far Lands, in episode 32. Speaking of Jason, I spoke with Rosie Samter earlier this year. She's the violist in the Videri String Quartet, which she also founded. She loves a piece that Jason wrote for Dead Space 2 called Lacrimosa. One of my friends shared it with me right after I started Videri. Okay. So I had no idea what I was doing. You know, here I was, like a classical string player, playing around with this crazy idea of, you know, string quartet and video game music. And um, my friend Chelsea Tralia sent me this piece. And it was kind of like, at that moment, I realized that video game music is just as powerful and just as important as these other string quartets that I'm playing during at conservatory. And it was really like... I could take this piece and I could spend months working out the little details and like really getting into what does this mean? How do we as a performance group interpret this and how do we play it? So 
So for me, it was really, you know, because I'm a performer. Everything that I do revolves around performance of pieces. And so much of video game music is just, it, it's not live performance. And that's not saying it's bad, yeah. <laughs> but that's just saying that it's, it hasn't been recorded live for whatever reason. And that just doesn't interest me as much because I'm all about the performance. And so that was really like kind of a gateway into this whole new world for me. We spoke to Rosie for a segment we do called Patron of the Week, in which I interview patrons of the week about their favorite video game music. You can become one, too, at patreon.com level. Another segment we feature from time to time on level is called Overachievers. Here, we talk to folks that have achieved the sometimes arduous task of getting all the trophies or achievements in a game. Our friend Holly Harrison did just that in Assassin's Creed Syndicate, so we had her on to chat about that journey, including one trophy that requires players to destroy 5,000 objects with a horse and carriage. So after finishing the game the first time, that's when I decided to go back and look at the trophies, see what I was missing, see if it was at all attainable to get all of them. So there were some that I had to grind to do, like you have to kick a certain number of enemies off trains, which despite there being lots of trains in the game, you don't actually spend that much time fighting on them. So I had to replay some levels to do those. And the Destructibles one, I just assumed that I I must have saw 5,000, not realized what a ridiculous number that was, (laughs) and assumed that I I would just achieve that by driving on the sidewalk a lot more. So (laughs) every time I got in a carriage, I would swerve on over and just take out everything on the sidewalk. There are like lamp posts and other just posts along the footpath. If you hijacked a bus or a, a bus? fire truck, you could also take out awnings over businesses and sure. stuff. Sure. Yeah. I proceeded to drive on the sidewalk everywhere, never fast travel anywhere. And even after clearing out all the other trophies, I still didn't have it. And so for the first time ever, I think I was like, well, I just, I guess I have to replay an Assassin's Creed game. And there's no option for a new game. Plus, there's no save files, really. You just have the one save. So I had to delete really? all my data and start over. Oh. For the entire game, for all nine sequences of the game and all the side missions, I didn't fast travel anywhere. I drove on the sidewalk. <laughs> I took out probably thousands and thousands of pedestrians. Right? Now, did you get, do you get in trouble for that? Like, what happens if you do that? I mean, doesn't that act? Yeah. They, they, like, dodge out of the way. I, I think they they knew that. <laughs> they knew you were on the mission for a trophy. <laughs> right. If you <laughs> were going to be running down pedestrians, it would be really annoying if that mattered. It yeah. pulls aggro on members of the rival gang and policemen, of course, oh, but okay. well, pedestrians yeah. just kind of scream and jump out of the way. <laughs> You can hear the rest of Holly's story during episode 12. And remember, if you also have a story to tell about getting all the achievements or trophies in a game, let us know, because we would love to have you on. I get a kick out of those stories for some reason. Well, since VR is now a thing that we can, like, own, I guess, if you have enough money. (laughs) So for the first time in our lives, we've been interviewing composers about writing for VR. 
Some of the composers we talked to this year about VR included Chance Thomas, Jason Graves, because Farlands is a VR game, Kenny Young, and Enon Zur. Enon scored a Ubisoft VR game called Eagle Flight. This is my very first uh, VR game, and I remember, I mean, it, it, it was so funny how it all came together, because about a year ago, I was invited to Montreal by my dear agent, Jeremy Valakit. He invited me to a party, and in the party, there were a few people, very interesting people. One of them was uh, Mathieu Ginson, and he is the audio director for all the Assassin's Creed games. Okay. And we started to talk, and then he said, like, you know, I have a little project that I don't know what to do with. It's very experimental, <sighs> but I'm very excited about it. Do you want me to tell you about it? And I said, like, sure. <laughs> and I started working on it, and this was this game. And I would love it if you could just describe a little bit about it, because you got to play it, too. I know you did. And I would love to know like what the game is like and, and how you felt playing it. Well, the beauty of the game is, first, the setting. The setting is in a very weird, situated Paris, which has no human beings there for years and years and years, totally <sighs> deserted. Okay. Still amazingly beautiful, but all caught up in a jungle, basically. Mm -hmm. And everything there, all the only habitat there are just animals. <sighs> so it looks like a big Paris safari. <laughs> nice. So basically, you are an eagle. And there is a side story or, or a main story about you, and there are a few missions. I don't want to spoil anything for whoever did not play the game yet. Yeah. But it, it, there is very strong narrative to the game. The whole beauty of it is that you are actually learning how to fly. Enon was featured in episode 45. What a beautiful game and score. David Bateson... I loved talking to this guy. He's the voice of Agent 47 in the Hitman series, and he has had such an interesting life. Born in South Africa, but back and forth to the UK a few times and other places, ended up in Copenhagen, where he now lives, and loves it there. Now, I suppose when you've got some years under your belt, you, it's easier to, to kind of see specific decisions in your life, where they led to. Although moving to Denmark was not a... A career move. I just wanted out from what I was doing in Britain. I was curious about that, how you ended up in Denmark then. Well, you know, I, my agent called me up and offered me, got me an audition for this English-speaking theater company of Copenhagen. And my exact response was, are you trying to get rid of me? <laughs> Where is Copenhagen? You know, I mean, I, it's kind of, I'm in London. Right? What the hell? Isn't that the capital of Sweden? I mean, really, it was just... 
didn't take right. it too seriously. And and um, but I went to the audition, and here's the thing: I was so such a low place in myself at that time. This is mm. like the uh, autumn of 1990 that I was fed up, and I wanted to either quit the business. Or as they actually say, the you don't quit the business, the business quits you. Yes. And it was the big recession in Britain at the time, 1991. And there was just nothing, nothing out there. And I was so fed up of having a hard time in Britain, like anywhere. You, you know, it's a tough business being an actor. So I did this audition and what was a 10-week contract got extended the yeah. weird thing was that looking back in South Africa, they thought I was British, and in Britain, they thought I was South African. So when I moved to <laughs> yeah. Denmark and they said, hey, you're foreign, I went, yeah, <laughs> I, I am, well spotted. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but that's when I felt kind of, you know, at home. So mm. there was an irony that that 10-week job, which was going to be over by Christmas, and now I was going to fly back to South Africa to be a producer for a film company to making industrial films and, and stuff. And mm -hmm. I felt such a backward move. I just felt like, oh, this is such a loser thing to do. Mm. But I just wanted out. Yeah. And then this thing got extended and then the other production came. So I, that, that first gig was five months. So when I went back to my sad little flat in, <laughs> in South London, kind of my burnt out cellar, you know, horrible <laughs> dump. <laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, taxis wouldn't drive you there. You know, they go, where'd you live, mate? And I go, uh, Pointers Gardens Estate. I went, bye. I've got money. <laughs> and they just, and they just, they just, just drive away again. <laughs> so that five-month gig kind of convinced me that when I go back to, hey, this place was nice, mm -hmm. Copenhagen. I felt like I'd been there before. I just loved the old city of it, and then I loved the uh, and the Scandinavian kind of way of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, That's what they call social democracy. So when I decided to move to to Denmark, even though I was holding this British passport, I also have a, a South African, I'm a dual national. They said, well, hey, we need an English-speaking actor in Denmark, like we need a hole in the head, so um, <laughs> go away. <laughs> like, but, oh, no. Yeah, no, seriously. They, and they, um, I had to get a job doing anything. And, you know, I wasn't fussy. I've <laughs> I've been on the street in, in London. I've lived on the I've been homeless for... Ooh, oh. I've never said that out loud actually to other people before, but I've but I had, and so I wasn't I wasn't being proud or anything. I just said, yeah. well, what do I have to do to to stay? Because I want to mm -hmm. stay here, mm -hmm. and I I got a job as a kitchen help in a restaurant, just washing mm -hmm. dishes mm -hmm. and uh, prepping food, and, and I was happy as Larry, and you know started going to Danish school from day one. You'll hear our full conversation in episode 10. He's voiced like every Hitman game. It's incredible. Now, if I were making a list of best soundtracks of 2016, which I'm not, but if I did, this next one would be on it for sure. Swedish composer Douglas Holmquist did a synthwave score for a mobile game called Pinout. And maybe because I'm a child of the 80s, or maybe it just really is that good, but I listen to it weekly. He worked with a singer, too, for the game, so I asked him about her. Oh, yeah. Her name is Susanna Lundgren. She's a singer that I got to know like 10 years ago. She used to live in Malmö, where I live. Mm -hmm. But then about five years ago, she moved to Gothenburg. 
and we didn't have a lot of contact for a few years. Mm -hmm. But back around the time when she lived in Malmo, she was actually in seven bands at the same time because oh everybody God. wanted her in in their in their band. Wow. She's such a good singer and she's yes. so good at like finding harmony vocals and mm -hmm. she's a great keyboard player as well. When I contacted her, she told me that the only kind of music that she was really into right now is exactly the kind of music that I wanted to make for Pen Out. That was also a lucky circumstance because she used to be in lots of like indie rock, like okay. folk kind of bands. Yep. So I thought that was her main thing, but it turned out she was really into this 80s inspired electronic stuff. Douglas is in episode 46 alongside another great score from 2016, Kenny Young's score for the VR game Tethered. So Sam and I went to PAX East in Boston in the spring, which is always a good time. And we got a special treat this time around. We got to visit the Harmonix Studios. Harmonix being the creators of Guitar Hero, Rock Band, Beat Sports, A City Sleeps, and many, many more. Also their early games, Frequency and Amplitude. We had the chance to sit down with Alex Rigopoulos, who co-founded Harmonix in 1995. I asked him what inspired them to start the company. Um, well, both Iran, my co-founder, and I came from music backgrounds and computer science or engineering backgrounds. Interestingly, Iran is a much more serious musician than I am and also a much more serious uh, engineer than I am. I was a hack at both things, but actually it was uh, the fact that I was such a hack as a musician that was a big part of the motivation for you know both of us to, to work on this problem, you know, which is that almost everyone in the world loves music and feels this innate urge to make music and tries to learn an instrument at some point and quickly discovers that it's very, very difficult. You know, the path to having a joyful experience making music is a long and difficult one, and most people don't have the time or talent or patience to make it through to the other side, and so they quit. And then they spend the rest of their lives still feeling this uh, this urge to make music, feeling that itch, and playing a lot of air guitar and, and singing to a lot of, you know, music that they love, but just not really having an outlet to scratch that itch that we all have to make music. And so we just... Ron and I just felt like we were both kind of born to solve this problem. This was the problem that really motivated us and got us out of bed in the morning. So we started Harmonix to solve it. And, you know, in the beginning, we weren't making video games. We were just making interactive music software of various sorts, and, and games didn't come until a few years later. Frequency and Amplitude were the first. They were. And we just used controllers for that. Uh, we did. <laughs> so how did the hardware come in then? How did What made you to decide we need to step this up a notch and, and make this a, a new experience. 
Well, uh, you know, one of the hard lessons we learned from frequency and amplitude was that, you know, once people got inside the play experience, they had a fantastic time. But getting them over the hump, getting them to play the game was quite difficult because those games were completely foreign looking. It was a completely abstract visual presentation of the music gameplay experience. The controller was not a natural device for, you know, not an intuitive device for making music. I mean, they, it was just, uh, it was forbidding. It was not appealing at, at a superficial level as a music-making experience. And I think that what was so compelling about putting a, you know, a fake guitar in people's hands with Guitar Hero is that it solved all of those problems. People immediately understood the conceit. Who were they? What they were? Do- what were they doing? And we tapped into a pretty deep fantasy that a lot of people have. The rock star fantasy is a is a universal one. So in many ways, it was about overcoming that initial barrier of getting people to understand, like, what were we asking them to do or what were we asking them to become and offering something to them in a package that they could easily understand. And even past that first moment of getting them to try it, there's something very powerful about having that guitar in your hands. It makes it, uh, it continues to pay off the, you know, the, the fantasy and, and preserve the suspension of disbelief um, while you're playing the game. When we were at At Harmonics, we also spoke with members of the audio team, and you can hear all of those conversations in episode 19. Disasterpiece scored a new game this year called Hyperlight Drifter, and it is no surprise to me that I completely love his music for that game. When we spoke this summer, I asked him what kinds of things he experimented with to create that music. I had a lot of ambitions with this project to write I wanted to write some sort of athletic, through-composed pieces of music, and I wrote some of those pieces, and I, the pieces were good, but I didn't really make them work within the context of the game. First of all, they were really difficult to orchestrate and arrange, and, uh, you know, like kind of the transfer from writing something on the piano that was like had a lot of parts to the computer, because it wasn't the kind of thing that I wanted to do on the computer. I wanted to I wanted it to feel more natural, and I mean, most of the music I wrote for the game, I did write on the piano, but you know, most of it that actually made it into the game is pretty much more simple ideas than some of the other stuff I wrote, which was, you know, which were like six, seven, eight minute through composed pieces. Mm-hmm. And so when I actually put some of these into the game, it turned out that that it didn't really fit with the flow of playing the game. You know, you move through the world fairly quickly from level to level. Mm-hmm. And to have these really long pieces of music, it made it very difficult for me to kind of stay in step with the context and kind of the emotional quality that I wanted. And by having much shorter pieces, it made me a lot more agile with the music and that I could like, I could have things change more quickly and uh, I, could, I could stay better on top of what was going on, you know, with the player. Disasterpiece is featured in episode 33, and we recently had a patron chat with him, and we'll share that publicly in early 2017. Last, but certainly not least, is Sarah Schockner, who scored this year's Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. And this is one of those times, and this happens more often than not, I just edit it out, when I was completely wrong. I thought this sound that she was using in this one track was an electric guitar. <laughs> It's not, it's actually a synth. For real? Yeah, it's like a, it was a modular synth patch 
It does kind of sound like a guitar, though, like a weird, deranged guitar. But um, that, yeah, that track was cool because it came about from just a long improvisation. I, you know, sometimes I'll write tracks, like I'll write a melody or the chords or whatever. But for that track in particular, I just had recorded like a 20 or 30 minute improvisation on the modular with no plan. Like I wasn't even planning it for a track. It was just completely random, just 20 minutes of me sitting and turning knobs. And it's very boring and long. But then (laughs) I went back I went back in and I found that little riff that kind of plays throughout the track. It was just one small part in the whole 20 minute thing. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So I built the whole track around that. anything that makes a sound like if I'm if I can't find a sound sometimes I just like wander around my house I'm like oh this metal pot looks like it might make a cool sound (laughs) I've talked about this before but on Infinite Warfare a lot of the percussion is like weird metallic objects and I have these tin whales that my parents got me they're just like decorative tin recycled tin whales and they're like they're like a main sound for like all the clickety metal stuff comes from those (laughs) whales. (laughs) You'll hear the remainder of that conversation with Sarah Schockner in episode 50. And this has been episode 53. Thanks so much for listening. Did you have favorite moments from 2016? We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter and or Facebook at Level with Emily. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media. You can learn more at june-media.com. And June is J-O-O-N.